You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, please turn with me to Ecclesiastes, and uh, we're going to look over these next two Sunday mornings at chapter 4. We're going to break it quite disproportionately. Um, uh, This morning we're going to look at the first 12 verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and uh, next Sunday morning, Lord willing, we'll be looking at uh, verses 13 through 16. So this morning, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, if you've got one of the church Bibles, you'll find it on page 670. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless and miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Amen. And may God help us uh, to understand and to live his word. Uh, I think it's, it's probably fair to guess that in the great pantheon of free church rock and roll musicians, Mick Jagger is not very high on the official list. There's always the unofficial list. There is so much. One of the pleasures um, I've had since uh, last September is preaching in quite a few free church congregations and getting to know quite a few free church ministers. And the difference between the stereotype and the reality is extraordinary, particularly that hidden reality. Uh, those, those CDs collections that uh, free church ministers enjoy and some of those cordials as well, which perhaps might not be traditionally part of the stereotype or in fact, might. Um, Mick Jagger might 
I, 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 mean, I never thought I would say this, but I think Mick Jagger might actually um, have read something in the Bible before he sang, I can't get no. Thank you, good. Um, <laughs> if I'd done that with just about any Bible verse, there might have been more hesitancy, but anyway. Um, because that phrase, I can't get no satisfaction, uh, as he goes on through the song, um, in many ways sums up uh, the, the kind of the base note of Ecclesiastes if you take God out of the picture. And um, of all the little passages in Ecclesiastes that, where, where Kaheleth, the teacher, really labors the point to his students that if you take God out of the picture, then life becomes profoundly, wherever you look, dissatisfying, then it's chapter 4. And uh, it raises some really, in, in this chapter, he raises really, really profound questions about what we are as human beings. And part of what we are as human beings is measured by what satisfies us, where we get our joy, where we get our sense of fulfillment, where we get our sense that life really has been worth it, that the day has been worth it, it was actually worth getting up this morning or whatever. And uh, what Kaheleth uh, is saying in four different sort of um, arenas in chapter 4, we'll look at the first three today, um, is that if you rule God out, if you just live under the sun, you notice the phrase in verse 1 there just reminding us that this little bit of teaching is about what happens if you live under the sun rather than under the one who made the sun. Um, if, if, you, if, you, if you live in a, in a universe which has no guard over it, uh, watchful over it. Uh, quite remarkable that we read Psalm 11. Verse 4 of Psalm 11, let, rem let me remind you, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. That, that is, the Lord is over the top deck of the universe, overarching it, superior, supreme, over all the other gods that inhabit the next layer down, over the sun, moon, and stars that form the sort of the outer rim, over everything that's part of the, 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 the bit of the universe that we inhabit. Uh, and over everything that is beneath, not only the, the physical sort of foundations of the mountains, but spiritually, um, the, the, the realm beneath. God is over it all, enthroned over it all, victor over all that would oppose him, and victor over all the chaos. Uh, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord, Yahweh, is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. If there's if there was, I guess, one verse in, 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 in the Psalms that um, gives us the antidote to what Kehleth is talking about here, then it is Psalm 11, verse 4. Uh, you might almost think it was meant, wouldn't you? Um, so what I want us to do is look at the ways in which um, our humanity is profoundly dissatisfied with life when we take God out of the picture. Um, what is it that, that just saps all the fulfillment out of life? Even, even, even the best moments, even the highest achievements, even the times when we should be most celebrating what is going on, there is this, this sort of, this, someone's pulled the plug somewhere, and already the joy, the satisfaction of the film is beginning to go down the plug. So the three areas, um, verses 1 to 3... Um, the, the, the question of oppression and justice and, and uh, power. Four, five, and six, work. 
and then 7 through to 12, uh, company or loneliness. It's, it's, it's opposite. Now, before we look at these in detail, these three areas of, of uh, power and oppression, of work and of human company, um, what I just want to do is, is, is kind of sow a little seed in, into your minds of what we do with all this, what we do with all this. Um, and I think we can do two things with this. The first is we can let the Bible do what the Bible does um, all the time. The, the Bible helps us to read the world better than the world can read itself. Right? So we can read the world better than the world can read itself. That is to say, we can make more sense of the world than the world can make of itself precisely because God is in the picture. And we know the ways in which God in the picture alters everything. So we, we can read the world around us. We can understand why it is the way it is. And we can communicate that to people. Not by going around saying, ha-ha, I know more than you do. It's kind of smug superiority. But saying, look, why is it that? Why is it that when we sang the word disarray in the, in, in the magical version of Psalm 11 just now, I would imagine quite a few of us are thinking of the political scene in our country at the moment. Just complete disarray. Why is it like that? Why have we got to that point where a crisis only demonstrates a complete failure of leadership? Why is it that the, the, probably the, the most significant anchoring speeches and contributions since Brexit Day or whatever came from the head of the Bank of England and not one of our elected leaders? Why? Why is it that People get off with stuff that is wrong. Why is it that we feel that that is bad? Where does that sense of injustice come from? Why is it that we feel that oppression is a bad thing and not a good thing? Why do we not laud the happy tyrant who can get off with anything? Why, what is it in us that makes us think that's bad? Where do we get this notion that something is not fair? So you see, we can use Ecclesiastes to start questioning, reading the world back to itself, saying, look, how do you account for these things? It's very interesting that, that Gareth opens with this sort of observing capacity. Again, I looked and I saw. This is just the way it is. There's no sense of denial. There's no sense of sort of uh, sugarcoating the world around. There's no, even, I was going to say even, but in fact, especially Christians should not sugarcoat the world around. If we go around in this haze of positivity, like everything is lovely and everything is hunky-dory, and we're just always being constantly positive, living in denial of the reality, then, then what do we do with the doctrine of sin, and why do we have a savior? And do we think sin is just breaking a few spiritual rules? Does it not pervade everything that happens in, our human, in, in, our, in, in humanity? See, see, we are woken up to the realities of life and we can read the world to itself so that we can help other people just get why the world is in a mess and get why they feel the things that they feel. And in so doing, point them to the God who is there and is not absent in Francis Schaeffer's phrase. The God who is enthroned above and sees everything. The God who is 
the ultimate realist. Not pessimist, which is what some people's version of realism is, particularly if you are a pessimist. You say, I'm just being realistic. And the optimists say, no, you're not, you're just being a pessimist. But the God who is ultimately realistic. That's one thing we, we, we can do with this passage. The second thing is we use it as a gauge for ourselves. Remember, Kehaleth was teaching uh, the, um, the, the, the people of Israel and particularly those who might end up in positions of influence. So this is for God's people, not just about the world and how it ticks, but about themselves. Now, what, what, what do I mean about using it as a gauge for ourselves? The extent, let's take an example, oppression um, and uh, you know, the, the powers on the side of the oppressors and all that kind of thing. The extent to which I find myself being unfair to other people is the extent to which I am living under the sun and not under the one who made the sun. Now, Kehaleth was teaching God's people. I'm one of God's people. I need this teaching, not just so that I can interpret the world around, but so that my own heart can be opened up by the Word of God. Let the Word of God expound me first, so that if there be any crooked way in me, it might become apparent to me. So the extent to which I oppress is the extent to which functionally I am living, thinking, feeling, behaving as if I can get away with it because God isn't watching. The extent to which I am living as if Psalm 11 verse 4 either isn't true or just doesn't apply to me. But did you notice in Psalm 11 who it is that God examines. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous. So if you're, if, if, if you're, if you're here this morning thinking, you know, yeah, that's great about the world, Yabu, wicked world, all that kind of stuff, I'm okay. It's us that the Lord is examining if we think we're righteous. The people who found Jesus most testing were those who thought themselves most righteous. So you see, I could read, I could read Ecclesiastes 4, 1 to 12 and think, oh yeah, oh, so terrible oppressors, all these people who live for work and all, all these folk are all on their own and all that kind of stuff. No, 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 that doesn't apply to me wrong so I have to let Ecclesiastes 4 1 to 12 pierce my defenses expound me open me out and I have to let it sort of say to me Dominic the extent to which you live for your work is the extent to which you are not functionally living under the one who made the sun before his face see, see what, you get what I mean so let's have a look at these three 
um, areas of life. And uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll look at uh, the fourth one, 13 through 16, under the heading of what do I mean? Uh, not what are, you, what are you talking about, Dominic, but, uh, you know, what is, why am I here? I mean, I just mean, it's at Peter's, you know. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. So our minds, eyes, we, we sort of play back scenes from the news on our TVs and whatever else we watch. And we see children, we see people in bombed hospitals, we see grieving parents, and uh, we see awful, awful oppression. We read about the sex trade. We read about people whose lives have been trapped by drug dealers. We see people abusing power, left, right, and center. Uh, what we see around us is is the 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 living daily nightmare of human power, of sinful humanity with its hands on the levers or the triggers. What we see around us is the, the reality, and we see more and more of it as our global communications um, expand, and we see more and more of it unedited and unfiltered as uh, anybody can post anything that they've videoed on their phone. Uh, what we see is, is the bitter, bitter, comfortless reality of Nietzsche's Superman, of the ubermensch who rises above anybody who would tell them what to do and limit their authentic existence. The person who has uh, lived the quest for power person who has killed God. And we see it on a huge scale uh, that hits the headlines, and we see it on little scales in workplaces, left, right, and center. Uh, we see what are sometimes referred to less than endearingly as trumped-up little Hitlers in the workplace. We even see it in churches too, don't we? The abuse of power. And power is on the side of the oppressors because everybody thinks they don't have to answer for it. They're just going to get away with it. And uh, their power is wielded with no accountability, with no fear. And to be under people like that is truly, truly awful. And as Kaheleth indicates in verse 1, if you just look around, you see it everywhere. 
You see it at school, between kids, between teachers, between teachers and kids. You see it in politics. You see it in public life. You see public servants who are no more servants than fly through the air. Wherever you look, you find it. And Kahaleth uh, sees just how awful it is. And as far as Kahaleth is concerned, the best way he has of, of, of trying to sum up what this comfortless, absolutely comfortless life is like is to say you'd be better off dead. You'd be better off never having been born than to endure that in your life. Better, uh, I declare that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Now, if you take God away, then you have no comforter. You have no sense of and what comforts you when you're under oppression and injustice is not somebody coming along, someone coming along saying, there, there, that's terrible, but somebody actually delivering justice. That's what comforts you when you are suffering injustice. So when, when you're that child who says, that's not fair, and children, as all of us parents know and most of us can remember, uh, children have a very acute sense of what is fair and not fair particularly when it's not fair to them. I'm sure you remember that. Tears of rage at the injustice of a situation that has been delivered upon you. Aged five. What you need, what will comfort you then, is mum or dad or the teacher or somebody stepping in and executing justice, or at least executing justice your kid brother or someone. Um, so you see, the, the, when we're talking about comfort here, we're, we're talking about that which delivers hope when you're under injustice. And what brings you hope when you're under injustice is justice. Freedom from under oppression. You are being crushed, oppressed, pressed down. You're being crushed. And what will give you comfort is not somebody saying, there, there, it's terrible, isn't it? But somebody lifting the weight away and giving you freedom. If you've taken God away, if you're just living under the sun, nobody is going to do that. Because power lies where? Lies on the side of the oppressor. Power does not lie with a deliverer. And that is an intolerable, awful, desperate situation to be in. It is unsustainable. Uh, People wish they were dead when they're in that kind of situation. An increasing number of people in the United Kingdom follow through on that. So what 
Gareth writes in, in verses 1, 2, and 3 there, it may seem extreme when you just read it in church on a Sunday morning, better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil that is done to the Son, but actually that's where an awful lot of people are. So then he moves on to another area of dissatisfaction. The, the, the oppressed have no satisfaction. The, the oppressed live the dissatisfied life. Nothing is going to fulfill them. Nothing will fulfill their desire for freedom and justice and liberty and, and just space again. So then he moves on to the next one. And I saw that all labor and all achievements spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless a chasing after the wind. Now, he's looking at the, the sort of the, 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 the achievement thing, the labor thing here in these three verses in three different ways. Okay, so the first one is, is, is the guy who's the absolute total workaholic who pushes himself, all labor and all achievement. What is motivating him? Envy of his neighbor. This is not just keeping up with the Joneses. This is being streets ahead of the Joneses. Thank you very much. This is being best in class. This is being absolute top of the notch. This is getting first in everything. This isn't just a competitive spirit because the, the race is to the swift. It's not a bad thing to want to win if you're in a race. Um, and all those people who say it's the taking part that counts, we all know instinctively are wrong. It's the winning that counts. Try playing Monopoly with a bunch of Christians. And it's, the, it, it, it's this notion that your whole life is meaningless unless you are ahead of your neighbors. That, that that's what you, that you've got to do. You've got to beat the people who've got what you want. So the thought that keeps the businessman awake at night is not responsibility for his employees. Um, it's not long-term sustainability. It's not answering the shareholders. What keeps this particular businessman awake at the night is the thought that in the next town, there's somebody else who makes shoes who's sold more than he has. You know, I may be making lots of shoes here in Kettering, said Mr. Timpson. Of, you know the Timpson shoe repairs people, all that? And now doing watches and iPhone screens and everything else. They used to make shoes in the town of Kettering, which is near Northampton, which is the shoemaking epicenter, or was the shoemaking epicenter of the universe. So, you know, all, all and, and Mr. Timpson no longer makes shoes. Because Mr. Clark made more shoes, not necessarily better ones, but he made and sold more shoes for more money. Mr. Clark did better than Mr. Timpson. How galling that would be to be Mr. Timpson at three o'clock in the morning. I saw that all labor and achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. Isn't that true? That what drives so much labor and achievement is the thought, that you, or this thing, you just could not stand the thought of anybody else being first. It's not necessarily a love for what you're doing. I mean, what, what, what man actually grows up wanting nothing more 
than to sell more shoes than somebody else. I mean, you, you know, that's not, that's not going to really turn, turn the crank of most human beings in itself. What turns the crank is selling more than somebody else. So it's not, it's not necessarily the work itself. It's the getting there first. And it's not Fred over the fence having a better crop of strawberries than mine. So when the largest marrow in the village competition comes up, you know the dirty business that's done during the night to stop Fred's marrows winning again. And as for Martha's gooseberry jam, all other jam is sabotaged. It's that sort of thing. Now, what does it, what does he say? If you take if you if you take God out of the picture, your labor and your achievement are going to evaporate. When you think you're doing well, your joy, your sense of achievement will just disappear. And it's this. It's this picture that he uses in, in, uh, in throughout the, 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 the collection that we have uh, in Ecclesiastes uh, many times of chasing after the wind. And um, it's, a, it's, it's a tragic comic picture. Because you imagine, uh, you know, you, you go down in, into town, a crowded town, and everybody is running around. Just picture a scene. If you, everybody's running around, and they're all doing the same thing. They're all running chaotically, randomly around, trying to catch the wind. And it's, it's an absurd picture, but it's, it's horrifyingly absurd. It's disturbingly absurd. That people will be wasting their time chasing, trying to catch the wind. But Heather says that's actually just exactly what it's like. It's it, it's almost comic in its tragedy. It's disturbingly absurd. Why is it meaningless? Because it'll never work. There'll always be somebody else. So you sort of sleep one night knowing that you've made and sold more shoes than Mr. Clark in Northampton, and then all of a sudden, you're worried so you slept through the three o'clock barrier, and you get up for breakfast, and you're troubled over breakfast. Mrs. Timpson asks you, what is it, darling, that's troubling you? And you think, well, I've, I've, just, I've just heard of Mr. Loke, young Loke down the road. I think, I think he's going to be the next thing. I think. And all your joy is gone because you're worried about the next one coming up who's going to beat you. Top of the pile is precarious. If Andy Murray wins today, and he takes the number one slot in the world, do you think he's going to be resting easy? Knowing that Djokovic will get better? Watching all the younger guys coming up? Who's the next kid on the block? And envy as a driver, is, is just never going to yield any kind of satisfaction at all. Because if envy is your driver, then you will always find someone to envy. It's like people who throw things. They'll always find something to throw. Whatever it is. 
even if they have to take their shoe off to do it. So what does he do then in verse 5? He goes to the other side. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Um, and uh, the, 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 there's a bit of a pickup from Proverbs 6, um, the famous go to the ant thou sluggard passage um, about the, uh, the man who just folds his hands and a little sleep, a little sleep. You know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to have a snooze this morning. You know, afternoon snoozes are okay, but you know, I'm going to have a snooze this morning. He sits back and folds his hands. Disaster strikes him. He doesn't, doesn't, he's fast asleep and snoozing and his house is on fire or something like that. So the fool folds his hands. Idleness just brings ruin. So then he comes in with the, the, the other thing. Better one handful with tranquility or contentment, or the word is rest. Better, than one, hand, better one handful with rest than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. And then this, this third area of, of dissatisfaction, the loneliness thing. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling? He asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless and miserable business. And he's right, isn't he? Loneliness just makes you feel so kind of pointless about what you're doing. Why am I working so hard? Who am I doing all this for? Who am I going to leave all this to? Why aren't I just having a good time myself since I'm not benefiting anybody else really? What's my life for? And so that toil yields meaninglessness because he's alone. Um, it is a crushing thing, is loneliness. It is a joy-sapping, draining thing to be all alone. So what did God say when he saw Adam? He said, it is not good for a man to be alone. Not just because he's going to make a mess of everything if he doesn't have his wife helping him, um, which we know to be true, um, but uh, because of the question, well, what's the point of everything? It's not just company, it's purpose as well. For whom am I toiling? And so his eyes look around, and what, is his eye, what are his eyes going to see? His eyes are going to see lots and lots of wealth, lots and lots of substance, but no point and no contentment. Interestingly, what um, Kahalath is doing there, in terms of reading the world back to itself, um, uh, some of you may be familiar with a, a, a kind of a, a fairly uh, well-known, famous TED talk uh, by Stephen Sinak um, on, a, on uh, why, and he wrote a book on it, and it was kind of a great revolutionary thing, and uh, he was talking about um, innovation and driving things in business and, uh, and wherever, and, and the really central thing you've got to work out is why, and then you work out what you need to do about it, and then you work out how you're going to do it. Um, and uh, this has sort of been a wonderful thing, and, and he's made a 
load of money on it and the book sells and everyone's going around saying, that's, that's so profound, that's so profound. You've got to sort out the why and the purpose and what's driving you. Why are you doing this? And, uh, and according to Kehelleth here, he is 75% right and 100% wrong because there's a false circle in the middle and the false circle in the middle is who? Who? Because we live in a personal universe, not an impersonal universe. And we were made to relate, not made to be on our own. So Stephen Seneca is saying, well, you've got to sort out why. And the Bible says, no, 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 no. You've got to sort out who first. Who are you doing this for? And then you can look at why. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? For whom am I toiling? But not just reading the world, I have to ask myself that. When I was a, a, a church minister, um, I lived the life of many, 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 many church ministers. Which is you basically eat, sleep, and drink the job. It's why you are where you are. It's the house that you're living in. It involves all your family. It is everything. It is 24-7. However carefully you try and help people and however many good people in a congregation get it, there will always be somebody who phones them and says, I know you're on holiday, but... Um, So you're never off the job. And uh, it is so easy in that situation just to live for your work. And many a minister has found himself working and working and working, there being no end to his toil. And he looks round, and he might actually have a family somewhere in the vicarage, but he's lost all touch with them. Because he's hardly ever available. And when he is available, he's useless because he's too tired. And at that point, as a minister, I had to ask myself, Dominic, I'm living as if, you're not living as if you're just under the sun. Because God is easier to work for than this other thing that you're working for. So in terms of power, in terms of labor and envy, in terms of company. Uh, Living under the sun is meaningless. Verses 9 through 12, uh, by the way, let me just say uh, in passing, um, weren't really written for weddings. Um, I, I have read these verses out at many many a wedding, a lovely passage for a wedding. Uh, because two's better than one, and there they are getting married. So that's lovely. And then you can introduce the Lord uh, in the third strand at the end, and that's a lovely point to make in a wedding. However, it's not actually <laughs> what uh, Ecclesiastes is saying at that point. But never mind. Um, good for a wedding, so that's fine. Um, you know, like 1 Corinthians 13, you think, actually, I don't think Paul wrote that for a wedding. He was giving them an almighty row for their selfish... Maybe he did write for a wedding. Um, 
because he's, he's basically saying, look, company is better than solitude. And, and the point that he's making is found in, in other parallel wisdom literature in the ancient Near East as well. Um, and so in the way that he's in verse 6, he says that contentment with one handful is better than trying to do things with two hands and chasing after the wind and better than idleness, verse 5. So in verses 9 through 12, it's saying that company is better than loneliness. But what he's saying in all these three things is, look, if you take God away, that's what you will become. That's what you will become. So how's it going with you? And you'll understand, I'm asking the question myself, uh, of myself. How's it going with us? Functionally, how's it going with work? Functionally, how's it going with other people? What's the reality of how we use the power we've got? Or the reality of feeling oppressed? How's it going with us? To what extent is Jesus my comfort? To what extent am I doing everything as unto the Lord? Colossians 3. To what extent is the Lord the one who's sticking closer than a brother? To what extent am I living under the one who made the sun? So put me under oppression. How do I cope? Do I cope as if I have no comforter? Give me power. How do I cope? Give me work to do. Please, give me a job. Give me work to do. And what do I do with it? What happens in my heart? Give me company. And what am I like? But put me on my own. Leave me with my own company. And how do I fare? Is the Lord with me? Even through the darkest place? Can his rod and his staff be my comfort? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we, we prayed forgive us uh, when uh, we find that we can get no satisfaction in this life because we've just lost sight of you and we've stopped living before your face. And we've just drifted into worldliness in our thinking. And we've just begun to function like the world that, that we would love to win for you. We pray, Heavenly Father, that uh, when we are in these testing circumstances, or these tempting circumstances... We pray that we might truly live before you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.